This paid program may not represent the views of Hubbard Broadcasting Incorporated or Federal News Radio. Statements and opinions of this broadcast are solely those of individual contributors or advertisers as indicated. Federal News Radio does not take responsibility for those statements or opinions and accepts no responsibility or liability for any inaccuracy, errors, or omissions reported during this program. Welcome to the Business of Government Hour, a conversation about management with a government executive who is changing the way government does business. The Business of Government Hour is produced by the IBM Center for the Business of Government, which was created in 1998 to encourage discussion and research into new approaches to improving government effectiveness. You can find out more about the center by visiting us on the web at businessofgovernment.org. And now, the Business of Government Hour. Welcome to the Business of Government Hour. I'm Michael Keegan, your host. What is strategic foresight? How can strategic foresight help government leaders be more effective? And what is the mission of the Center for Strategic Foresight at the Government Accountability Office, GAO? I'll explore these questions and so much more with my very special guest, Stephen Sanford, director of GAO's Center for Strategic Foresight. Steve, welcome to the show. It's great to have you. Thanks, Michael. Great to be here. Steve, I'd like to provide some context and a little background for our listeners What does the U.S. Government Accountability Office do? Right, Michael. So we're actually an agency in the legislative branch of the federal government. And uh, we support Congress directly in meeting its constitutional responsibilities uh, to help improve performance and ensure oversight over uh, the federal government. And so GAO is, is a unique entity. We provide uh, nonpartisan objective information and analysis to Congress uh, regarding the performance of federal agencies. And we also uh, make all of our work available to the public as well. So uh, we're really the, the watchdog uh, for the federal government. And we are there to uh, support Congress in their oversight function. That's an important context. So, Steve, would you tell us more about the history and mission of GAO's Center for Strategic Foresight? What prompted its creation? And and more importantly, how does it support the overall mission of GAO? Sure. Well, you know, foresight has been part of GAO's DNA for decades. It's uh, not a new concept for GAO. Uh, If you go back and look at some of our uh, previous strategic plans going back years, you'll see uh, there's always an element of uh, trend analysis and um, it's kind of situating the agency and and the nation in a strategic uh, context, a kind of uh, a broader uh, strategic context. That said, we felt there was uh, a need to give even more emphasis uh, to broaden the platform for GAO's foresight work. And uh, creating the center was uh, one of the steps in that direction. Uh, I've been uh, you know, building a foresight ecosystem at, at GAO for almost 10 years. And uh, this was an important step in that direction. So back in uh, fiscal year 2018, uh, GAO's executive committee under the leadership of our comptroller general, Gene Dodaro, uh, a- approved a charter for the Center for Strategic Foresight and the, the goal was to enhance our ability to analyze current and projected trends and their potential impact, not only on GAO as an agency, but also more broadly on federal agencies and the type of work that uh, we're asked by Congress to do. 
So Steve, with, with, with such an interesting uh, mission uh, and portfolio, would you tell us more about your duties and responsibilities as director for GAO's Center for Strategic Foresight? So I'm actually dual-hatted at GAO. I, I lead both the strategic foresight programs as the center director, and I also lead GAO's strategic planning. And, and GAO, I think, is a bit unique in, in that setup where we have both the strategic foresight and the strategic planning functions fused in the same office. And as we'll probably get into a little bit more in our discussion, that's got some real advantages where we're able to uh, infuse foresight into our, our planning activities. Uh, but my, my main uh, focus as a center director is, is assuring that GAO is really looking into the future, thinking about uh, potential uh, future opportunities, uh, potential risks, potential new areas and new ways of doing things uh, that will help the agency ultimately uh, deliver on its mission more effectively. But uh, it's, it's, it's a great job. I think it's, it's one of the best jobs in government. I, I've, I've really enjoyed it. Uh, I've got great support from, as I mentioned, the uh, our agency head, the Comptroller General, and also uh, James Christian Blockwood, uh, my managing director uh, for strategic planning and external liaison. I've uh, been huge supporters of uh, Foresight at GAO, and uh, that's, that's been really terrific to have that kind of uh, top-level top support. You know, Steve, regarding your duties and responsibilities, what are the top challenges you face in your position and, and how have you sought to address those challenges? Sure, sure. So um, there, there's two that come to mind. So, so one, one challenge is uh, if you survey people who do foresight in government, uh, typically you'll find that their shops are relatively small and we're always thinking about how can we do more with uh, limited resources and that requires you to be creative, but especially, and, and this is, I think, the, the key here, is to uh, build partnerships both across the agency and outside the agency. Uh, foresight work is not something you can do locked away in a closet, uh, not talking to anyone and not building um, alliances and partnerships uh, across the agency. So a key to our success is really working well with uh, other teams across GAO uh, partnering with them to understand what their needs are, how we can help them, uh, and as well, uh, building uh, partnerships outside the agency uh, where we can to uh, bolster our ability to do foresight. That was also one of the reasons we uh, created the Center for Strategic Foresight. It gave us a platform to uh, work with uh, experts in foresight outside of our own agency. So we have, as um, non-resident fellows, part of the, uh, uh, the center, uh, experts in foresight from around the world, uh, from around the U.S. They come from academia, the private sector, from international organizations, uh, and from government. And uh, you know, we're very lucky to be able to tap into that brain trust uh, as we think about our foresight mission at GAO. The second thing I, I will mention about you know, how we, uh, I think, have found some opportunities in, in the role. I've done a lot of work with uh, building uh, design thinking uh, or human-centered design into our, our foresight missions. And that has meant um, getting my team trained up on um, human-centered design techniques. Uh, I was fortunate enough to spend some time at Stanford University's design school where I learned about design thinking. And uh, kind of marrying those two things up has been really exciting and, and been, a, a, I think, very rewarding. 
in terms of using the toolkit that Foresight provides to help think about the future and what the future can bring and identify some of those opportunities. And when you link that up with design thinking, design thinking is really good at helping you create things in, in the present. And it's a really nice bridge for getting uh, from the present into that future that you've uh, been exploring through uh, the foresight tools. And I really like how that combination comes together. And uh, we've done um, several projects around GAO where we've used those two uh, different uh, methodologies uh, quite effectively. So we go from you know the, the, your mission uh, portfolio to the challenges you face, and I'd like to understand, Steve, what has surprised you most during your tenure at GAO? Yeah, that's that's a good question. I, I think uh, probably something most people are unprepared for uh, is just the sheer breadth of work that takes place at GAO. The scope of GAO's mission. Uh, is huge when you look at uh, the fact we are charged with uh, conducting analysis and uh, research across essentially every domain of federal government operations. So whether that's uh, education or healthcare or defense uh, or banking and financial services, complex technology, you name it, uh, we're there. And that is both uh, wonderful and can also be a challenge when you're at the enterprise level thinking about how to develop strategies and, and prioritize because uh, that uh, remit is so big. We serve and provide work for nearly every standing committee in the Congress. Uh, and, and so with that breadth of, of operational space, I think it creates a need to uh, really think both tactically and also strategically about how best to cover all of those areas. I find that challenge a lot of fun, uh, but it's definitely something surprising when you come to GAO uh, and you see just how much uh, we cover. What is strategic foresight and how does it differ from futuristic forecasting? I'll ask Steve Sanford, director of GAO's Center for Strategic Foresight, when our conversation continues on the Business of Government Hour. To support government financial performance and accountability, financial systems must meet certain standards, and relying on outdated financial systems inhibits progress. ERP vendors are encouraging clients to move to the cloud and consider new technologies such as robotic process automation, blockchain, and AI to enhance financial productivity. Download the IBM Center Report Financial Management for the Future at businessofgovernment.org to learn why and how government can evolve to meet the demands of a digital world. The Ebola crisis in West Africa from 2014 to 2016 was an epidemic that put emphasis on global capacity to respond to international disasters. How can government better assess the needs of those affected and help them? The IBM Center Report Responding to Global Health Crisis by Professor Jennifer Widner breaks down the U.S. response to the Ebola crisis and provides insights on lessons learned that may aid the government responses in the future. Download your free copy, Responding to Global Health Crisis, at businessofgovernment.org. Welcome back to the Business of Government Hour. I'm Michael Keegan, your host, and our guest today is Steve Sanford, Director of the Center for Strategic Foresight at the Government Accountability Office. Steve, what are the key strategic priorities for GAO's Center for Strategic Foresight? And, and more interestingly, how do these uh, priorities connect with the emerging issues that were identified in GAO's strategic plan? 
Sure. So maybe I'll start with the broader context of the strategic plan. Uh, every four years, uh, as, as most uh, federal agencies do, uh, GAO issues a strategic plan. And as I mentioned at the top, we uh, put a lot of effort into mapping out the strategic context of uh, what the broader landscape uh, looks like as we put that plan together. And so in our last strategic plan, we had uh, eight different macro trends we explored, uh, everything from uh, national security and the fiscal condition of the country to uh, global cooperation and economics and trade, jobs and education. We looked at demographics, science and technology, uh, how governance is evolving, and also um, environment and sustainability. And, and through that uh, platform of, of uh, trends, we were uh, able to say, here are some of the, the broad drivers we see affecting the work we do and the things we can expect Congress to ask us to do over the next years that uh, have really uh, served to underpin uh, the rest of the strategic plan's um, goals and objectives. Building off of that, we've been using the center to try to explore areas that maybe we um, didn't uh, fully explore in the uh, trends document from uh, the strategic plan a number of years ago, or just issues that have evolved since then. Uh, for example, we, uh, we, we talked about uh, deep fakes and some uh, challenges around uh, those. Uh, we're really using the, the Center for Strategic Foresight uh, to help uh, focus a GAO's attention, and, and by extension, Congress's, extent, uh, Congress's attention on important emerging issues. So our main priorities right now are to explore areas that uh, we feel need more attention and that are going to uh, shape federal programs and potentially the work GAO does in the future uh, more substantially. Uh, and also just the way GAO does work. So for example, one of the areas that uh, the center is going to focus on this year is demographics. Uh, there are a lot of demographic drivers changing uh, how federal programs uh, will be managed in the coming years, and they also have potentially big effects on the federal budget. So we see that uh, the, the country has an aging population. Birth rates in general are down. That means we're going to have uh, more people retiring with fewer workers to support them. That's going to pose uh, significant uh, financial challenges to the country. And there are um, other drivers that are happening uh, on demographics in terms of uh, rural and uh, uh, urban divides and where people are living, and as well just how our country uh, looks and, and who uh, is uh, you know, going to be in the, the current youth bubble that we see coming of uh, different uh, diverse groups. So there's a lot uh, going on with demographics that I think is, is important to uh, understand. Another project we're working on is how uh, the whole notion of accountability, I mean, that's in our name at GAO. Uh, what does that look like in the future? So we're going to spend some time this year uh, at the center also exploring changing ideas about how auditors can do their work, uh, what does that look like in the future, uh, how would an audit agency or accountability agency function in the future, what kinds of things does it need to think about in terms of skills, um, tools, and resources. And as I mentioned earlier, GAO publishes a strategic plan every four years that emphasizes consideration of future issues that may affect the federal government and society as a whole. 
can you tell us more and elaborate more on your role in developing and shaping GAO's strategic plan? What are the trends identified in the plan? And perhaps you could tell us more about the planning process for developing the document. Sure. So I, I think it's uh, the process is one of the things I'm, I'm proudest of. We do the plan uh, completely uh, in-house at GAO. So we don't outsource it to consultants or anything like that. We really rely on the uh, subject matter expertise of the people we have uh, at GAO who cover all those different issue areas I mentioned. You know, we have 15 different teams at GAO uh, with subject matter expertise. Uh, that's a huge resource uh, for us. And it's really uh, as much uh, their plan as, as anyone's. And we look to using that expertise, leveraging that expertise uh, to help shape out some of these trends. So one of the starting points we do is my team is, is uh, engaged in a process of what we call um, horizon scanning or environmental scanning, where we're constantly uh, looking uh, for emerging issues that could inform uh, the trends in the plan. Uh, and then we kind of take our knowledge uh, from from that effort and we link that up to interviews we do with our internal subject matter experts. So we'll ask them, you know, what is, what is Congress asking you about? What do you see as uh, an important risk or opportunity in the future? Uh, what are some of the blind spots maybe people aren't thinking about? And so we bring those two uh, things together, the work we've done in our foresight shop along with the subject matter expertise. And from there, we kind of map out what our trends uh, are going to uh, look like. And then we work with the teams to um, write them uh, in-house. And this does a couple of things. First, uh, it creates buy-in. Uh, the teams have a sense of ownership uh, of the plan. Uh, the second thing is the teams themselves, uh, you know, we, we have then parts of, of the agency going through the process of thinking about the future as they uh, help develop the trends. And I think that's really important. The extent to which a, a planning process can really get everybody uh, on board into thinking about the future, uh, you know, the more that can happen, the better. And I, I think when we pull our trends together uh, at, at GAO, we really do move uh, the ball down the field and, and trying to uh, you know, achieve that goal. So, you know, we talked about the mission of the Center for Strategic Foresight, your priorities, your other uh, responsibilities at GAO, but we've never defined in all this conversation, what is strategic foresight? Could you tell us what strategic foresight is? And, and more interestingly, how does it differ from futuristic forecasting? And how can strategic foresight help government leaders be more effective? Sure. That, that's a great question. And I think it's it's one of the biggest misconceptions about uh, strategic foresight is that it uh, tries to predict the future or tries to forecast uh, things. Uh, forecasting and foresight are related, but they are quite different. Forecasting is you know, essentially working from existing data. A lot of times it's just time series data and projecting that out into the future, right? We have a certain set of uh, assumptions, baseline data, maybe some constraints, uh, and you get some um, smart statisticians or um, economists or uh, actuaries and you know, they draw the line and they can tell you uh, what that forecast is going to look like and maybe what some of the error bars are around it. Uh, but it's a prediction. And that's not what strategic foresight is about. Strategic foresight is really a tool to bring in when you don't know uh, what that you know, dotted line is, is going to be or you don't have a good sense of it. 
you know, so an analogy might be forecasting. We're all familiar with weather forecasting and, and we, we get our predictions for what the weather looks like uh, over the next several days uh, where we live. But uh, a strategic foresight approach would ask those what if questions. You know, what if we had a sustained drought? What if uh, there were three weeks of sustained blizzards? Uh, you know, it asks those kinds of questions which lead you down very different paths. And I think that's an important thing to keep in mind. So it's, it's really where we don't have data or we're asking questions uh, where the forecasts um, uh, are, are, are leaving off that foresight uh, comes, uh, comes to really shine. And I, I think there's a couple of ways that uh, foresight can help leaders be more effective. Um, the first, when you go through a foresight exercise, especially with um, executives, uh, the, one of the first things you do is you start challenging assumptions. Uh, everybody goes into their work every day with a sort of set of baseline assumptions. And if you think about it, that's actually the complete opposite of forecasting, right? Forecasting, we're taking our baseline assumptions and we're trying to project to the, to, into the future. Strategic foresight is saying, let's actually have a real tough uh, conversation about those baseline assumptions. Are those even the right assumptions? Can we change them? Is there space to do that? And then that takes you down a very different path. And that's just a, a major change in mindset that I think is really essential for leaders to be more effective. The second thing uh, foresight can do is because it's uh, uh, interdisciplinary and it really values seeing how larger systems, especially complex systems work, it emphasizes breaking down silos or breaking down barriers between um, organizational entities within an agency. And that's another, I think, vital aspect to strategic foresight, uh, that it helps facilitate conversations across boundaries and um, find those places where maybe an issue uh, doesn't have a clear owner uh, or maybe a risk uh, has the potential to fall through a crack. And that's another way that foresight can really be important for leaders. And, and you've said this, Steve, you know, strategic foresight isn't new in the government, but um, can you tell us about some of the ways foresight has been used and applied in the operations of government? Sure. I, I think uh, one of the uh, places uh, folks might be most familiar with uh, foresight work is uh, the National Intelligence Council it does its global trends work uh, that was led for a number of years by uh, Matthew Burroughs. And I know that they're working on uh, their next uh, iteration of that uh, document. And uh, typically, you will talk to a lot of people in um, the defense and intelligence communities who have engaged in, in foresight through the years. And, and that makes sense, right? They're looking at long-range scenario plans. They, they need to think the unthinkable and go down those paths. So you'll find in a lot of the um, national security areas uh, and the different components of DOD, and even now um, to some extent uh, DHS, uh, people thinking about this, but it's not limited there. Uh, there's a very uh, active uh, community across the federal government. Uh, my boss, James Christian Blockley, he founded this group, uh, the Federal Foresight Community of Interest, and a member of my team now has uh, taken up the reins of um, uh, being a co-chair there, Cheryl Griziak. And, you know, through her leadership and the people she works with in that group, that's really helped 
create a community across government where folks can find um, allies and like-minded practitioners and discuss both the challenges and the success stories that, that come from practicing foresight in government. So it, it's definitely an active area. Uh, we're very fortunate uh, at, at GAO where with the stability of uh, the way we're set up, so uh, the Comptroller General, the head of our agency, has a 15-year term. And something like foresight can really blossom and grow over that 15-year term. And we've also had a, six, uh, a series of uh, Comptrollers General who have supported it. So uh, foresight has been able to put down deep roots uh, here at GAO. When you just look across other agencies and, and the natural rhythm of uh, administrations changing and senior executives changing and, and political appointees changing, that steady state isn't always there uh, for foresight. And, and so you'll, you'll notice uh, variability across agencies sort of as to how well it's rooted or whether it's been there for a long time. And I think that's, that's one challenge the community has, but there are a lot of people really committed to it. And it's good to see uh, not only in this country, but also globally, there, there's a, a very active community in government um, trying to, get out of the day-to-day kind of tactical decisions and think more long-term for the agencies. Strategic foresight can inform national policy in the face of profound uncertainty about what lies ahead. And uh, and I was wondering, what is the best way to link foresight to decision-making? So one of the essential components of, I think, making foresight uh, operationalized and kind of bringing it to life is linking it to uh, core business processes uh, within uh, an organization. So if there is a foresight team and really all they're doing is occasionally creating a research paper uh, and they're kind of hived off uh, doing their thing, but aren't linked up and integrated into the, the key business processes of the, of the agency, then they're not going to be as effective as a unit. Uh, So I mentioned earlier, Foresight at GAO, we are linked uh, very closely with the strategic planning process. We are also linked uh, to processes that look at annual tactical planning. We are also linked very closely to uh, reviews uh, looking at enterprise risk. We do a lot of hands-on work uh, helping teams across GAO think about how they can uh, maybe change how they approach their work or their planned work in the future. So we have those very concrete touch points uh, with established business processes and that are also keyed into the core work, uh, the core mission of the agency. So I, I think to be successful, the Foresight ecosystem has to work across um, all those key components of uh, an agency in order to have meaningful impact. Otherwise, it's um, going to be something that is just uh, on the side and is not necessarily influencing or uh, providing information to help uh, inform uh, decision-making. Steve, to what extent is cross-agency collaboration essential for effective strategic foresight? And, And how can existing efforts be improved to achieve this goal? Sure. So, uh, first of all, I would, I would, you know, recommend everyone review uh, what's in um, OMB uh, A11. Uh, so, sections, 
you know, 220 and 230, uh, actually lay out very coherently how strategic planning and how cross-cutting uh, agency priority goals interact with each other. And I think that's uh, an important starting point is to just have some knowledge of the fundamentals uh, of, of what's there. Uh, I would defer to uh, my colleague, Chris Mim, who I know you've had on the show before and, and his team on you know, how well that's happening um, across uh, agencies and, and in OMB uh, through the, the annual processes. Uh, but there, there was a vision set out in the Gipper Modernization Act that governs all of this uh, that really did call for priority goals to be set across agencies. And I think to have an effective strategic planning effort, and A11 talks about this, there needs to be some consideration of how those government-wide uh, priority goals uh, will fit into individual agencies' planning. So that's, uh, I think, uh, a really uh, important thing to keep in mind. And just as part of any agency's scanning, uh, they should think about you know, to what extent does their stakeholder uh, map include other agencies or what are their touch points with other agencies, whether that's um, you know, potential for data sharing or um, other types of support. Or, uh, you know, GAO has done a lot of work on overlap and duplication, and that would be another place to look in terms of how to better align um, goals across agencies. So it's, it's uh, definitely worth uh, doing and uh, should be a, a part of uh, the strategic planning process. Whether it's the Evidence um, Act or what have you, the demand for uh, measurable outcomes has posed uh, an enduring challenge in the public sector, but you know, also in the private sector as well. Steve, can the effectiveness of strategic foresight be measured? Yeah, this, this is a huge question, actually, in, in the uh, community of, of practitioners of, of foresight. It's how do you measure this thing? And if you think about it, it's, it, it is a big challenge. You have something at a, a high level uh, that's agency-wide, and you know, ultimately you would want everything you're doing through a foresight and strategic planning effort to be supporting the overall goals and missions of the agency and, and whatever ways you've got set up to, to, to measure that. But th that still doesn't always satisfy everybody when they, they think about this question. And it, it may be one where you know, we have to rethink the metrics a bit. And, and considering uh, an analogy uh, outside of government might be helpful when, when contemplating this. So you know, if, if we pretend that we are, you know, we rewind a couple of decades, we're flip phone manufacturers, uh, you know, making the old school flip phones, we might have a really robust set of metrics that measure uh, market penetration for these phones and we're measuring defect rates as they come off the assembly line and um, customer satisfaction, right? So we have this really robust set of, of metrics and we think we're doing fine. But we have no clue with those metrics that there might be a huge strategic shift with the advent of smartphones or touchscreens that are going to render the flip phone obsolete. So how do you measure that, right? It's really hard on a kind of quarterly or annual cadence with the metrics that would really give you a good sense of is your business running well or not, or is your agency delivering on, on its, its goals? You know, how do you link that to these broader strategic questions? I'm not sure 
it can be. And it actually, I think, points to the need to have a regular and structured foresight process, especially linked up with strategic planning, where that is considered, where those sorts of uh, things that aren't captured by your metrics uh, can be on the table and can be thought about, those what-if scenarios. And that um, might be one way to think of it. Another would be to consider what are the indicators of an effective foresight program? And this kind of builds a little bit on on what I was talking about before, but you could imagine a a set of indicators such as executive leadership buy-in starting with the head of the agency. You could measure that. You can look at things like uh, what are the touch points with the um, key business processes or key operational uh, mission-related processes across the agency as another potential metric. Uh, what's the visibility or awareness of of the program? So there are some things that I think one could start to look at in terms of um, uh, getting some indicators uh, as to the success or, or robustness of a program. But I think, back to your original question, Michael, it, it's going to be tricky to assess, I think, with the kind of classic set of metrics that we use when we think about performance to evaluate fully what foresight does because it is at that strategic uh, kind of what if level. What is the cross-sectoral impact of COVID-19? I will ask Steve Sanford, director of GAO's Center for Strategic Foresight when our conversation continues on the Business of Government Hour. How does an agency decide upon and implement a performance management framework that will be successful for their specific administration? The IBM Center Report, a practitioner's framework for measuring results, follows the implementation and results of the CSTAT management framework in Colorado's Department of Homeland Security in hopes that it can guide others who may want to institute a similar approach. Download a practitioner's framework for measuring results by Melissa Wavelet on businessofgovernment.org today. Agile methodology has allowed for agencies to keep up with the growing demands for fast response to problem solving. The Opportunity Project, TOP, serves as a catalyst in adapting agile techniques to solve complex agency mission problems. TOP works with federal agencies to identify challenges and facilitate iterative approaches in response. In the IBM Center Report, Agile Problem Solving in Government, Joel Gurin and Katerina Ribello discuss the factors of success involved in TOP. Download your free copy today at businessofgovernment.org. Welcome back to the Business of Government Hour. I'm Michael Keegan, your host, and our guest today is Steve Sanford, Director of the Center for Strategic Foresight at the Government Accountability Office. Steve, we are conducting this discussion virtually as we remain in the midst of a pandemic. Uh, I was wondering, um, what can you tell us about the cross-sectoral impact of COVID-19 beyond the obvious health and economic aspects? So uh, one of the things um, I I did with my team and the Center for Strategic Foresight uh, at at the end of March, beginning of April, in the throes of of the first uh, lockdown, was to to do some work asking that question and exploring what some of the implications are and delivering that as a product to our internal management teams. Everyone was running fire drills in terms of just how do we work remotely? How do we meet the needs of Congress? even the mundane things of, you know, we have travel planned, how do we cancel it, things like that. So everyone was in fire drill mode. Uh, We thought it was an important moment in our foresight shop to 
uh, take a strategic pause and think about what are some of the spillover effects of, of COVID in those areas, as you said, that, that extended beyond health and, and, and the unemployment issues. And some of those insights uh, fell into some uh, broad categories. For example, uh, just questions around um, global security and national security. What does this mean moving forward? How, how, how destabilizing will this be? as we navigate through. And I, I should start by saying also, uh, Michael, that what really uh, underscores all of this is just the massive amount of uncertainty involved, right? We don't, we, we are in a point right now where there seems to be easing. If you look at the numbers in terms of infection, there's a lot of questions as to, will that trend line continue? Are we going to see a second wave? A lot of uncertainty. And that uncertainty, I think, informs all of these areas. So there's, there's great uncertainty on how this will play out over the next six months or the next 12 months, over the next 18 months in countries around the world. We've seen extremely differential impacts uh, in countries. And in some countries, it's hard to get information. That's potentially destabilizing and I think is something for uh, us to, to uh, you know, be aware of. The second was, you know, back in, in uh, April uh, and, and late March, it was uh, apparent there were some disparities in how uh, COVID was affecting different communities in the U.S. Uh, there's going to be a very big debate that plays out over the next year and beyond on where are we going with global integration? We were sort of at the peak in some ways of global integration before COVID hit. I mean, people were traveling all over the world in unprecedented numbers. Global trade was robust. There are going to be countries or going to be governments that start to question their supply chains that are going to question what are the national security implications of reliance on imports. Um, there are going to be a lot of discussions like that had. And some of the things that we may have taken for granted in terms of global supply chains, and, and which, which have actually you know, reduced the cost of a lot of goods uh, in, in, in recent decades, um, some of those may be on the table for consideration, and not only in this country, but, but in others. Well, I'll end with two other points. One is, uh, and this is you know, near and dear to, to GAO's heart, just what are the impacts going to be on government finances? Uh, there was uh, extraordinary measures taken um, to uh, respond uh, with financial support uh, to the COVID crisis. How that plays out, states and localities are experiencing severe uh, decreases in their, their tax base from, from the shutdowns and, and, and so forth. Uh, there's going to be a, a serious budgetary challenge confronting a lot of state and local governments uh, in the coming uh, year and beyond. Uh, that's going to have profound implications on, on, on services that are provided at that level of government and also um, raise additional questions about how the federal government interacts with state and, and local governments. Uh, and then uh, finally, uh, I, I think we also saw through the crisis how a lot of uh, organizations uh, innovated very quickly in terms of either bringing uh, different types of technology on, online, uh, finding ways to work remotely when uh, they hadn't been able to do that before. Uh, I think there's a big question as to whether that innovation mindset will continue um, post-COVID um, or uh, is just a flash in the pan. And uh, I think that's a question a lot of um, uh, agencies and organizations are wrestling with in terms of what this uh, COVID year has meant uh, in, ter in terms of long-term long impact on, on agencies and, and organizations. So Steve, as a, as a follow-up, are there efforts around building resiliency into various aspects of government operations? 
and what can be done to make various ecosystems more resilient. And I know GAO has come up with a disaster resilience framework. Maybe you could tell us a little bit about that, how that factors into this kind of question. Sure. Yeah, it's a great question. And, and you're spot on, Michael. We're, we're seeing through um, the COVID lens, and we also saw in, in, in uh, the years running up to this uh, through uh, disaster, uh, you know, natural disaster lenses, the importance of this concept around resilience and, and what can the government do to help uh, build resilience in, 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 our, in our systems. Uh, so a number of years ago, I got started uh, in a project at GAO where we were, we were asking this question around disaster resilience. And it's an example, uh, actually, of where we, um, my office brought together some design thinking and foresight tools to help bring a really diverse group of uh, experts to the table from around GAO to think about what are the elements that would factor into uh, natural disaster resilience? Uh, what are the types of uh, communities? What are the stakeholders uh, that would be involved in framing that out? And uh, that, that led to the disaster resilience framework, I think you mentioned, uh, was issued in October of 2019. That work was led by uh, GAO's director for Homeland Security and Justice, uh, Chris Curry, uh, but with the support of a really broad range of, of experts across GAO, uh, because you know, disaster resilience, it not only cuts across levels of government, but it also cuts across sectors, everything from you know, what governs building codes to first responders and how, for example, FEMA interacts with um, state and local uh, government. So that, that whole ecosystem had to be considered um, in the development of, of the, the framework. And what I really liked about the framework is, in some ways, what it lays out, um, I think, is applicable for any number of, of approaches to resilience. Because the, the, the framework talks about having um, vision. It talks about needing to um, you know, understand the stakeholders. And it's based on having a good, uh, good sense of who the stakeholders are and, and also looks at incentives. And, and it's also very interdisciplinary. And I think any kind of conversation about resilience has to start with those things. Resiliency ecosystems are very complex. They have a wide, wide range of stakeholders. So some of the same tools that can be used um, in, in foresight and, and design thinking can actually help uh, organizations explore what it means to be resilient by doing that stakeholder mapping, by doing the needs assessment, by asking those kind of creative what-if questions or how might we questions about designing a future uh, that we would prefer to have than, than uh, what we do now. Because ultimately, that's what resiliency is about. It's, it's not avoiding future events, but it's, it's about mapping out how we would wish to encounter them and, and find ourselves on the other side of them. And I think that's, that's an, important, uh, an important distinction. So, Steve, I know you had a role in, in, in facilitating the development of GAO's science and technology plan. And I know there's some key S&T issues that were identified, and, and GAO also reorganized how it works. I, I'd love you to talk about that a little bit, but also focus a little bit more on artificial intelligence, AI, and how important it's becoming in our digitized life. At the same time, there's so many promises, there are a lot of perils and risks how has GAO sought to gain a better understanding of the emerging opportunities, challenges, and implications resulting from the development in AI? And perhaps you can highlight some of the challenges and implications. 
Yeah, absolutely, Michael. Uh, this has been um, a huge area of, of focus for GAO. Uh, we talked about uh, the importance of artificial intelligence in our uh, strategic plan trends uh, and, and our uh, last strategic plan we, we put together. We saw it as, as a, a key emerging issue that was going to have not only a, a major impact on um, how government is done, but, but just in everybody's daily lives, and, and that certainly there would be interest from the Congress on it. As we're partnered with a lot of teams across GAO, we, we've been um, working closely with uh, GAO's new science technology and uh, analytics team. Back in 2018, uh, we partnered with them to issue GAO's first technology assessment on artificial intelligence. And that laid the groundwork uh, for some subsequent work I'll, I'll, I can mention in a moment. But there's also been a lot of other work across GAO looking at the effects of AI and automation, uh, not only being done within the uh, science and technology team, uh, but in, in others. So GAO has looked at um, the effects of workforce automation, it's uh, examined uh, automated uh, vehicle uh, policy. It's looked at uh, how technology is influencing or um, having implications on the federal workforce and talent management. Uh, we've also looked at um, facial recognition technology. Uh, so there's a wide scope of, of different issues related to AI that cut across different issue areas. But really, you know, specifically on the S&T parts of it, GAO has done a work looking at not only overall assessing technology, but how it's being applied in different domains. So our 2018 work, we really uh, focused on uh, what were some of the learnings we could uh, apply from looking at the way AI is used in some uh, what we call high-consequence activities, things like cybersecurity, things like automated vehicles, things like the criminal justice system, uh, or uh, financial services. These are all places where um, if AI uh, doesn't work right, it could have you know, profound uh, implications. So we thought by examining uh, that and bringing a form of experts together under the uh, Comptroller General's um, convening power, uh, we could explore some of those uh, insights. And, and we uncovered some areas um, for uh, uh, policy consideration in terms of uh, where, for example, safety and security need to be uh, taken into account or um, incentives for data sharing need to be bolstered, but also looking at areas uh, of research such as computational ethics and explainable AI, or how can better uh, quality labeled data be derived, things like that. Uh, also, the, the uh, potential importance of, uh, of sandboxes where different regulatory regimes for uh, monitoring or, or providing oversight over uh, AI can, can be tested. So we had a number of, of, of insights come out of that work. Uh, another area we've uh, at GAO been exploring with regard to AI has been in uh, healthcare. So uh, we uh, issued our first uh, report on machine learning and drug development uh, at the end of uh, 2019. And there's another uh, report underway right now looking at how uh, artificial intelligence is being used in the delivery of uh, medical services. So this is an area that's got a lot of interest uh, from the Congress and one that um, GAO has put a number of resources into. The science and technology team you mentioned uh, that was created back in January of 2019, that team's been growing. And uh, I think that reflects, um, you know, Congress's investment in that, in that capability at GAO reflects uh, the uh, bipartisan uh, support that, that 
uh, GAO has in, in terms of uh, wanting uh, nonpartisan uh, and independent analysis of S&T issues. So, Steve, in 2019, the Center for Strategic Foresight at GAO convened a conference to discuss policy challenges related to two issues, deep fakes and the evolving trends in space. Would you tell us more about these emerging issues? What are deep fakes and what insights came out of that conference? Sure. Thanks, Michael. Uh, yeah, we were really excited about that uh, conference. It was a chance to uh, really, as, as one of the uh, inaugural public events that the center was doing, explore two issues that we had been tracking um, in the center uh, and, and also with my foresight team for a while. Uh, one of them uh, around uh, deep fakes, which I'll, I'll talk about in a minute. And then also a lot of uh, really neat things happening in, um, in space. And uh, you know, 2019 saw the advent of uh, you know, three different countries uh, trying to land uh, vehicles on the moon. Uh, you know, none of them were, were uh, Russia uh, or the U.S. Uh, so that the whole landscape of, of who's doing what in space had changed. And there's uh, a lot of uncertainty uh, about the governance structures that apply to space, right? Who owns something on the moon? Uh, what happens when private actors start doing stuff on the moon? Some of the treaty regimes we have in place, we, we heard from experts, never contemplated the idea that you could have uh, private sector actors uh, doing stuff in space to the extent they are. And you know, this was a, a fascinating area to explore. Uh, we're also, you know, we're far more uh, reliant on uh, satellites uh, than, than, than ever before. Uh, and space is big and vast, but it's, it's also in some ways getting crowded. Uh, I've got a, a member of my team right now working on um, uh, some research into space debris, which was one of the things that came out of that, that conference. This idea that uh, there's a huge risk uh, from everything uh, from, from crude uh, space exploration and operations to just getting uh, stuff into orbit or, or even out of orbit for uh, deeper space exploration of running into other objects. There's a lot of space junk uh, in orbit uh, that could be catastrophic if uh, something uh, is, is hit. And it's a cascading effect. This is the other uh, interesting thing that came out of the, the conversation. Uh, if you have one or two disasters in terms of colliding stuff in space, you're creating more and more debris, which is going to create more and more risk of further such collisions. So, so there's a, a kind of major opportunity that's happening right now in space. And we've seen that with, with the uh, public-private sector collaborations uh, that, that took place this year with, with getting a crude uh, launch. But there's also a number of things that need to be worked out. So that was the first step in exploring some of those space issues. Deep fakes was, was also a, an issue we were tracking quite closely. Um, artificial intelligence, I mean, coming back to, to artificial intelligence, uh, that technology has evolved in a way where uh, there are many algorithms that can generate uh, things that only previously humans could, could generate, right? Whether that's text or uh, human voice, uh, whether that's uh, an image or a video. AI algorithms and systems are, are able to synthesize these things. And that creates the potential for what happens when uh, fake media is injected into uh, you know, platforms that we, we all use uh, every day in our lives. Uh, so you know, social media's um, influence and prevalence in people's lives is nothing new. And to the extent that uh, misinformation campaigns or deep fakes might be used 
in those uh, platforms is, is, a, is a big consideration, um, something that's been of interest to Congress. Uh, we, we briefed a couple of committees on the Hill um, after that work. And then we also partnered with the um, uh, science and technology team we mentioned and talked about earlier. Uh, they issued a technology spotlight on deep fakes as well. So that, that spun out of uh, our conference. Uh, so it's really about uh, highlighting issues that um, either maybe aren't getting as much attention as they should from a broader audience, such as the, the space policy issues that we explored, or highlighting and, and casting extra attention uh, onto things that have the potential to be disruptive, like, like deep fakes. Uh, but it's interesting. Deep fakes is getting to the point where we uh, see a kind of cat and mouse game evolving where algorithms are getting good at creating it, but then forensic algorithms are getting good at detecting it. And so there's this uh, uh, almost arms race of, of, of which is going to be better. And, and a lot of uh, what we talked about in the conference, too, was around the need for education, you know, this, this idea of digital literacy and, and for uh, users of uh, social media platforms to understand that, that these risks exist and that uh, there can also be uh, industry solutions to help address some of this, such as watermarking and, and things like that that are being explored. So, Steve, what is being done to develop, enhance, and strengthen the strategic foresight capacity in the U.S. government, sure. So, there's um, certainly you know no shortage of examples around the world of uh, you know prominent foresight offices and uh, different national governments. Uh, you know, Canada has one. Uh, Singapore is, is very robust uh, with its uh, foresight program. Uh, Finland has a foresight office attached to its parliament. Our our form of government, the way we budget, the way uh, we have the three branches uh, separate and independent the way they are, we're not in an, uh, a parliamentary system, for example, uh, where you actually do see a lot of foresight offices attached to uh, and, and sort of leveraging a, a parliamentary system around the world. I think we have to acknowledge we, we just as a government are set up differently. And uh, you know, locating a home for foresight, uh, a sort of unified view of foresight, uh, across uh, the U.S. federal government is hard because uh, the, there is no such thing across all three branches of the U.S. federal government. Uh, now, I think at GAO, actually, uh, we are probably the closest thing um, that we have to a national foresight office. We, we have the ear of Congress, uh, as I mentioned at the top. We cover uh, this enormous breadth of issues, and that remit gives us the scope to uh, actually assist Congress on uh, issues of, of greatest national importance and, and to explore emerging issues across all those different domains. So I think GAO, and especially with our nonpartisan and independent uh, values, is well positioned to, to serve that role uh, for Congress. Uh, and, and I think you know, looking at ways to um, uh, maybe deepen the expertise and the application of foresight across uh, agencies would also uh, help uh, to kind of create that more government-wide uh, capability. Well, Steve, thanks very much. I, I want to ask you one final question, and that is, what advice would you give someone who's considering a career in public service? Sure. So uh, I, I would say, you know, bring your innovation mindset into government and, and, uh, and don't be afraid to try to use it. 
uh, I have you know, greatly benefited in, in my team having new and fresh perspectives. And I'm not talking about um, just hiring entry-level people. Either it's people with you know, different backgrounds who come from different industries. And you know, having that kind of perspective uh, in your foresight team is really important. But I think just public sector and, and public service in general benefits from a, a, a wide diversity of experiences uh, that, that people may have had. And it's interesting, Michael, I, I've uh, just in, in uh, uh, the last a couple of months gotten a little bit into woodworking and, and anyone who does woodworking uh, knows that uh, you've got to keep your chisels sharpened. And I think a lot of us come into public service uh, with really sharp chisels. And when you use a chisel, it dulls. And you know, do we take the time to resharpen our, our chisels? And I think bringing folks in with new and different and fresh perspectives is one way to do that. But you know, my advice to someone who's considering public service is bring your sharp chisel into, into government and, and keep it sharp. Don't let it get dulled from using it. And I think sometimes we, we fall into that trap in public service of uh, we might have a lot of fresh energy and, and momentum in what we're doing. And uh, those sharp blades get a little bit dulled over time. And, you know, keeping it uh, keeping it fresh, uh, using things like foresight, actually, to constantly question assumptions and get different views, get out of the four walls of our, of our uh, own agencies and see our agencies from the perspective of others. Having that type of, of uh, more, much more holistic approach, I think, is, is something that public service uh, would, would benefit from. And uh, I think there's uh, ample opportunity for, for folks to bring that kind of uh, energy and innovation mindset into government, and I hope they do so. So, Steve, I want to thank you for joining me today and taking time out of your busy schedule. Um, but more importantly, I'd like to thank you for your dedicated service to the country. Oh, thank you, Michael. It's, it's, it's a pleasure. Uh, it's a privilege to work at GAO. Uh, we've got uh, 3,000 plus uh, uh, fantastic people uh, working there, all um, aligned on a, a, a great mission to help government work better. So uh, it's, it's a privilege to be a part of it, and uh, I'm glad to talk to you about it today. This has been the Business of Government Hour, a conversation with Steve Sanford, Director of GAO's Center for Strategic Foresight. Be sure to join me next week for another informative, insightful, and in-depth conversation on improving government leadership and its effectiveness. Until then, subscribe, download, and listen to the entire interview at Podcast One, iTunes, or on your favorite podcast app, and as always at businessofgovernment.org. For the Business of Government Hour, I'm Michael Keegan, and thanks for joining us. This has been the Business of Government Hour. Be sure to visit us on the web at businessofgovernment.org. There you can learn more about our programs and get a transcript of today's conversation. Until next week, it's businessofgovernment.org. How can government best use big data to transform decision-making, public services delivery, and communication? The IBM Center Report Integrating Big Data and Thick Data to Transform Public Services Delivery by Yan-Yan Ang presents five recommendations for public managers introducing the concept of mixed analytics, urging thick data, meaning qualitative information about users, to be presented alongside big data to improve government decision-making. Visit businessofgovernment.org to read more.